Hello, this is World Business Report from the BBC World Service, where we bring you the latest in money, marketing, manufacturing, and yes, much, much more. Please review us, rate us, share us wherever you can. BBC podcasts are supported by advertising. Leute, habt ihr Bock darauf, eure Versicherung in den Griff zu kriegen und dafür 30 Euro Shoppinggutschein abzustauben? Hier ist übrigens Tara vom Podcast Tara sagt was und ich sage euch, ladet euch die Clark-App runter und nutzt bei der Anmeldung mein Code Tara sagt Clark. Alles groß und zusammengeschrieben. Da kriegt ihr nicht nur eure Verträge gecheckt, sondern ihr könnt euch auch kostenlos und unabhängig von den Expertinnen beraten lassen. Also probiert Clark aus und holt euch den 30 Euro Shoppinggutschein für Ikea, Amazon und Co. mit dem Code Tara sagt Clark. How can AI solve your business challenges? What's the best way to lead a new sustainability strategy? Staying ahead in your career isn't about knowing the answers, it's about finding them. Learn how to find the answers you need by studying online with London Business School's world-class faculty and industry experts. Search LBS online today. The Global Story, with smart takes and fresh perspectives on one big news story. Every Monday to Friday from the BBC World Service. Search for The Global Story wherever you get your BBC podcasts to find out more. Hello and welcome to Business, to World Business Report from the BBC World Service. I'm Roger Hearing and on this edition, South Koreans aren't having enough children. The latest figures suggest an existential problem for one of the world's most important economies. But what can be done? When I see how cute the kids are, I want one, but I know the reality. I know how much you have to invest. Also, one of China's biggest property companies companies, is facing a bid to wind it up as it deals with crippling debt. This has become pretty much the most important confidence test for overseas investment into China. And we're about to get a pretty clear cut view what happens when your investments in the mainland go wrong. Also, we hear from Guyana as two of the world's biggest oil companies fall out over who gets to run its lucrative oil fields and why Apple has pulled out of a project to make electric cars. And do remember, you can email us at any time on world.business at bbc.co.uk. Now, what does a country do when its birth rate falls so low, experts warn, people could become extinct? Well, that's the dilemma facing South Korea. It's one of the world's most economically advanced nations. But when it comes to having children, it's the weakest performer on the planet. The average number of children a woman there is expected to have in her lifetime is well below one. The figure is 0.72. That's the world's lowest. Well, gender inequality, patriarchal values and a competitive education system have all contributed to fewer births. Here are the views of some women in Seoul. I love my job, but in Korea, you're stuck in a perpetual cycle of work. We also have this mindset that if you don't continuously study outside work, you're going to get left behind and become a failure. And this fear makes us work twice as hard. Sometimes at the weekends, I go and have an IV drip just so I have enough energy to go back to work. My husband and I wanted a child, but we've both been so busy working. Now I see that if I had a baby, I'd have to stop work for at least two years to look after it. 
and I'd be very depressed stuck at home. When I see how cute the kids are, I want one, but I know the reality. I know how much you have to invest. I just wish I'd known more about the reality of raising kids and how much mothers are expected to do. The reason women aren't having children now is because they are brave enough to talk about these things. Some women speaking to us in Seoul. Well, the BBC Seoul correspondent, Jean McKenzie, told us about some of the reasons for the low birth rate in South Korea. I've spent the last year travelling around Korea, talking to women who don't want to have children, so I can better understand their reasoning. And two things have stood out to me in particular. The first is that women here still feel they have to make a choice between whether they have a career or whether they have a baby. They just do not feel that it is possible to do both. The working hours here are notoriously long and the working culture is incredibly competitive. And around this, women just do not feel they have the time to raise a family. Also, women are still expected to do the majority of the childcare. So with women here becoming increasingly highly educated, they are now choosing to prioritise their work over this more traditional role of being a wife or being a mother that society still demands of them. The second thing that stood out is this private system of education that Korea has. So children from a very young age here are sent to these expensive after-school classes. And because Korea is so competitive, parents feel that it's not an option to opt out of sending their children to these classes because they think their children would then fall behind. So instead, those who can't afford it are simply choosing to opt out of having children instead. If this birth rate, though, continues to fall, as we've seen it do year after year, it has huge implications for the country's population and its society. The population here is already shrinking and ageing. And if it continues, in the next 50 years, you're going to have more people here who are over the age of 65 than under 65. Jean McKenzie there in Seoul. So what will this do for the future of South Korea? How will its economy work when there are more people retired than working? Well, Dr. Young-Mi Kim is a senior lecturer in Asian Studies at the University of Edinburgh, and herself originally from Korea. She joins me now. Uh, Dr. Kim, thanks for being with us. Uh, First of all, are you surprised at how this is working out, or, or has this been something that's been tracked for a long time? Well, I'm not surprised at all, because Korea achieved a one of rapid economic growth, having, you know, 30 or 10% average, you know, economic growth in the past, but now only 1 or 2%, meaning less job opportunities for young people uh, with more qualified young people. That also leads to cultural factor, young people not having um, secure job. They They have tendency to give up number of things, including marriage, having babies, sometimes not even dating at all. So what can the country do about it? We know already the government has has given considerable rewards to people who have children, financial rewards. Is there anything else they can do? And is there a chance of turning this around? Uh, you know, preparing for the general election, a number of parties are proposing new policies, having more housing subsidies for young couples. And also uh, more, I mean, as you mentioned already, more rewards having second or third child and uh, more um, child care facilities. And if that goes into place, do you think people will change their minds? I mean, some of the Korean women we heard from earlier in the program suggest that it probably might not. They just they just don't want to have kids. 
Yeah, <laughs> that is true because for female, you know, they are more qualified recently and, you know, not when they are in the job market, they just don't want to give up. Does this worry you about the future of the country? Because there will come a point, I guess, where, as I said in my introduction, there'll be more people retired and elderly than there are people working and earning the money for the country to function. I mean, that's not sustainable, is it? Not at all, because even now already, a lot of people working in the factory are over 60 or even 70s. And this is going to be a huge problem because uh, there's a huge pressure on maintaining health system and pension. So less pension contributor among younger and more pension receiver among the elderly. So this is going to be a huge problem. So what about immigration? I know this is a very hot issue, but I mean, in a way, it is the answer, isn't it? There are in some countries, there are plenty of people who want to have a job in a place like, like, like South Korea. Um, would, the, would the government be willing to let them in? I, I agree with you. I think there are discussion and there has been uh, steady uh, policies inviting foreign laborers and foreign wives. And if you go to rural area in Korea, um, foreign wives, they, they have a family, you know, having uh, babies and settling down already. It has been at least two, three decades in Korea. So do you Absolutely. think do you think that will more. be an embraced then, Dr. Kim, by, by society and, and governments in the future? I think so, and I hope so. <laughs> you see it as the main the main solution, do you really? Yeah, because um, there um, there are quite a lot of uh, foreign um, community in the middle of Seoul, like uh, uh, Chinese community or Central Asian or Russian community elsewhere, and we can see there uh, enough labor work and then they are you know, raising their children. I think it's going to be a more extended version of future of Korea. Well, we shall see, won't we? <laughs> Dr. Kim, thank you so much <laughs> for being with us. Dr. Youngmi Kim there of the University of Edinburgh. And joining me here in the studio throughout the programme, in fact, is Russ Mould, Investment Director at AJ Bell. Russ, thanks for being with thank us. You, um, I mean, just, you know, the, the sort of area you deal in, investments. I mean, uh, South Korea is a very important economy. Are some of these people you deal with worried about the future? Because if you put in place a long-term investment and it looks like South Korea isn't going to have enough workers, that's an issue. No, the COSPI index in Korea has been one of the great success stories of the last 25 or 30 years. But yes, definitely economists, investors will be looking at this in crude terms. Population times productivity equals GDP. So it's a fundamental issue and everybody will be looking at it very closely. Well, we'll certainly be keeping an eye out on this programme as well. Thanks, Russ, for the moment. Um, now let's talk about what's going on in China because Country Garden is one of the world's largest property companies. Back in 2018, the Chinese firm was valued at almost $30 billion. Now it's struggling even to stay in business. A liquidation petition has been filed against it for non-payment of a $205 million loan. It's part of the sorry story of China's real estate sector in recent years, a sector that makes up around a quarter of the country's GDP, but is now mired in debt. A liquidation of Country Garden could be a serious blow for the economy of China, which has been stuttering in the aftermath of COVID. I asked Thomas Hale, the Shanghai correspondent for the Financial Times, will Country Garden be wound up? The question's kind of split into two halves here because 
Chinese property developers, although they are listed in Hong Kong and they have their holding companies in Hong Kong, the vast, vast majority of their developments and their assets are in mainland China. And of course, Hong Kong and mainland China operate according to completely different legal regimes. A liquidation order in Hong Kong of the kind that creditors are now seeking for Country Garden would not really allow liquidators to seize assets in the mainland unless a equivalent mainland court issued a similar order. So the likelihood of Country Garden's Hong Kong entities being liquidated is reasonably high if they don't come up with a restructuring plan. But there are very deep question marks over whether a liquidation could actually occur on the mainland where most of its developments are. Because we've kind of been here before, because Evergrande, which is another similarly in trouble property company, got a, an order from liquidation from Hong Kong, Kong court uh, recently already. It's, it's exactly the same situation. Of course, the difference between the two is that Evergrande sparked the ongoing Chinese property slowdown in 2021 when it defaulted. And it was the kind of problem child of the sector. It had always been too indebted. It was the world's most indebted developer. Country Garden, by contrast, which defaulted in October, so two years later, had prior to that been seen as a safe bet. People thought that Country Garden was relatively sheltered from the chaos that was going on in the property sector and and the fact that it wasn't and that it it not not only defaulted but is now the subject of this liquidation order really just shows how big the problem is for Beijing in terms of fixing the, the property slowdown. And I guess even if, as you say, they aren't necessarily going to have their goods seized in China itself, nonetheless the pressure on shareholders must be extreme the impression and the confidence that these companies kind of rely on must must disappear in fact this this has become pretty much the most important confidence test for overseas investment into china enormous amounts of money in excess of 100 billion dollars has flowed from hong kong into real estate development in in China as part of China's vast urbanization process. And we're about to get a pretty clear cut view. It might take a few years to to become exactly apparent. What happens when your investments in the mainland go wrong? Are you able to pursue conventional legal processes? Or is it a place and an investment market where you have no hope of getting your money back at all when things go wrong? And the internal issue is is quite bad too, because I think the property sector is about a quarter of, of the economy pretty much. The property sector, typically, if you take all of the various parts of the supply chain, normally accounts for over a quarter of the economy in China. It's been very weak for the the past two years, ever, ever since the default of Evergrande. And the government is in a very difficult position. It does not want to spend enormous amounts of money bailing out its property sector or stimulating its property sector. And it it has held off on doing that for for several years in the hope that the problem will sort itself out. And so far, as, as today's news really confirms, things are not sorting themselves out at all. And there also appears to be a worrying sign of of an entrenched belief among consumers that house prices will continue to fall. And of course, if you think house prices are going to continue to fall, you will defer your purchase of your next house. So would it be too strong to say, Thomas, that that what happens with the property sector could very well damage the whole recovery process for the Chinese economy as a whole? It certainly could. But I think in the in the interest in the interests of balance, it's important to point out that Beijing did deliberately try to not exactly burst the bubble, but to take some of the heat out of the property sector in 2020 in the early stages of the pandemic, when, of course, around the world, we saw a massive inflation in asset prices. The government was concerned about the political and the social effects rising property prices were having in China and has sought to tame these developers that were behind vast waves of construction. But there's certainly an argument that they've gone too far, but there will be people in the government who will be 
pleased to see these developers losing the status and the position and the centrality that they once had in the Chinese economy and will argue that although there will be a bit of pain for a few years, we will then be able to transition to other more productive forms of investment rather than wasting money on excessive amounts of urban development that won't ultimately be required. Thomas Hale there of the Financial Times. In 1969, a plan to show support for an anti-racism protest turned the lives of 14 promising black student-athletes upside down. I don't think we realized what the true flavor of Wyoming was back in 1969. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells the story of the Black 14. There was a rebel Confederate flag being flown. It was different. It was definitely different. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. You're with World Business Report from the BBC World Service. Right, well, let's talk a bit more about the markets in general. I was speaking to Russ Mould, uh, Investment Director, AJ Bell, earlier. Still with me. Uh, Russ, I mean, one of the themes I think we've seen across Europe, UK as well today, has been a bit of a dip in the markets, and it seems to be down to uh, sort of uninspired earnings coming out. Yeah, Asia had a bad night, which didn't help. That was down to disappointment with the Hong Kong budget and this country garden situation, which continues to rumble on. In the UK, we've had disappointing numbers from Reckitt Ben Kieser, from a house builder, uh, Taylor Wimpy, for example, a French company, Teleperformance, its shares have collapsed because people are worried that um, one of its customers, Clan, or their customers are now using an AI chatbot rather than the, the, the call sensors. So I think that's not helping at the moment. Now, there are concerns that the European economy is nowhere near as strong, for example, as the American ones we've seen from the US GDP numbers this afternoon. And of course, what we've got coming round the corner is inflation data. And that's, I think, the end of the week on the Eurozone, but also US. What are we expecting? I mean, what everybody's hoping to see is a cooling in inflation, except in Japan, where what they're hoping for is that it continues to run above the, above the bank of Japan's target because it means they've dragged themselves out of 35 years of deflation. So you've got slightly different goals there. But what Western financial markets are hoping for is this cooling in inflation, a decent economy, a soft landing at worst, which will give central banks a chance to pivot to cutting interest rates and make making money cheaper. And that's what central banks love is cheap money to play with. Well, indeed. And the markets, I think, are pretty much factoring in at least uh, several rate cuts in the US, maybe more, uh, in the next six months. Yeah, which, they've got to be careful there, because on the face of it, these US GDP numbers, plus 3.2% growth, pretty good. Yes, a lot of it's dependent on government spending. Bidenomics, but then if President, if Mr. Trump wins, he's not known for being, you know, careful with other people's money either. So we, you're looking for interest rate cuts at a time when the US economy is pretty strong and the two don't go together, really. Let's finally mention uh, what a development in a story we have covered before, which is, of course, what happened with that airliner, Alaska Airliner, uh, a Boeing plane that, uh, well, the door fell off, or at least the panel fell off. Mm-hmm. A lot of concern about the Federal Aviation Authority now giving. Boeing, 90 days to come up with a plan to improve matters. Is that going to improve their share price? Well, it's up a little bit today, intriguingly. So at least, I guess, they've been given some breathing space, but they obviously have a lot of very unhappy customers, Ryanair included, who are now talking about compensation if they don't get their planes on time. You would like to think that Boeing already had a plan to sort this situation out, if the truth be told. Uh, So let's, fingers crossed, that they do. We shall see. Russ, thanks very much indeed. Russ Mould there with me here in the studio. Now, let's talk about Guyana. Oil is often thought as a golden apple resort one that a country celebrates discovering, but rapidly finds it hinders as much as it helps a nation's prospects. And Guyana has certainly been experiencing that, with the huge reserves discovered off its coast. Its neighbour, Venezuela, has claimed the territory that brings with it the area of oil-rich seabed, and it's threatened military action to back up its claim. 
And now two of the big oil companies involved have fallen out over who owns the blocks. On Monday, ExxonMobil said it may preempt Chevron's acquisition of a 30% stake when Chevron buys out Hess, which owns that stake. Hess says the agreement doesn't allow Exxon to do that. I asked Dennis Shabrol of Demerara Waves Online News in Guyana about the dispute. Well, at the moment, there seems to be a toss-up between ExxonMobil and Chevron over the acquisition of Hess. Uh, so far, the Guyana government has uh, not said anything about it. As a matter of fact, uh, we are told that this basically is a, is a dispute between two companies. So that is where it is being left by the Guyanese authorities. But it's a difficult situation, I suppose, at the time when the whole area is being disputed by your next-door neighbours, the Venezuelans. Yes, difficult in the sense that for the, for the companies, this has to be resolved. Uh, either way, at, at the end of the day, they will not want to find themselves in a situation where, they're, um, where their investments are tied up in a dispute, where uh, further exploration work is curtailed. So this dispute will have to be resolved one way or the other. And as far as you say, the Guyanese government's concerned, as long as the money they get in from it stays the same, they don't really care. No, they do not really care. As a matter of fact, from day one, since uh, Hess decided to sell uh, to Chevron, the Guyana government has basically taken the back seat, and that position remains the same until today. And Dennis, what's going on with the dispute itself with Venezuela? Because I I think uh, Guyana had a a pretty high-profile supportive visit from the U.S. recently. Yes, they they had a visit uh, a few days ago by the United States uh, Ambassador to the United Nations, Mr. Linda Thomas-Greenfield, and uh, she has basically reiterated uh, the United States' support for Guyana's territorial integrity uh, in relation to the border, the border controversy with Venezuela. The matter still primarily is held up at the level of the International Court of Justice uh, for adjudication on the validity of the 1899 arbitral award. So at the moment, I would say the tensions have cooled in contrast to the last few months uh, where we had had a lot of sabre rattling by Venezuela and there had been even the movement of troops by Venezuela near the border with Guyana. All that has dissipated as a result of the accord that uh, Guyana's President Irfan Ali and Venezuela's President Nicolas Maduro um, had reached in the Caribbean island of St. Vincent. Um, in, in early December. But of course, Nicolas Maduro has elections coming up, and many people have suggested that part of this uh, ramping up of the argument is to do with his election. So it could, I suppose, get more tense again. Yes, well, I think that there is where uh, one needs to ensure that the process uh, actually remains calm. Uh, the Guyanese authorities are fully aware that this can uh, eventually rear its head again as part of Venezuela's own domestic uh, political conditions leading up to the elections. Uh, the president of Brazil, actually, uh, Mr. Lula da Silva, is expected uh, to arrive in Guyana any time now uh, to participate in the Summit of Caribbean Community Leaders. And undoubtedly, that will be one of the issues to be discussed bilaterally between the president of Guyana and the president president of Brazil. But for the moment, Guyana feels in a much safer position than it has done for a while. Yes, it, it feels in a much, that it is in a much safer position, uh, notwithstanding the fact that uh, President Lula, as well as, as Venezuela's Defense Minister Pedrino, had warned up to about two or three weeks ago that it would not allow any exploration uh, of oil off the coast of Estocobo because uh, Venezuela maintains that in addition to the land area of Estocobo, all the waters off the coast of Estocobo also belongs to that Spanish-speaking nation. 
However, Guyana maintains and ExxonMobil itself maintains that it, that they both have a right to carry out activities in the area. Dennis Shabrol there, speaking to me from Georgetown. Uh, Russ Mould of AJBL still with me here in the studio. Russ, I mean, these sort of disputes between oil companies on the fringe of an international border dispute, I mean, I suppose these kind of disputes with oil companies are not unusual, Chevron and Hess and Exxon. Not at all. At the moment, there's a big wave of acquisitions taking place in the oil industry. Exxon itself is looking to buy Pioneer Natural Resources. That's an onshore play in Texas and New Mexico. And Chevron and and, um, Exxon both basically saying we think oil and gas are going to be with us an awful lot longer than everybody thinks and ecologists would like to think and we're positioning ourselves for that future yeah worth fighting over in other words Mm. thanks russ now it's not often that apple backs away from a technological challenge but when it comes to electric vehicles it's made a sharp turn away because over a decade the company spent billions trying to catch or exceed the capabilities made available during a revolution led by tesla it was an initiative that it kept quiet and it hasn't officially acknowledged that it's over. But the special projects group, as it was known, was still some years away from actually making an electric car. So what went wrong? Well, joining me now is Seth Weintraub of Electrek.co, the EV news website. Uh, Seth, thanks for being with me. Um, was it a surprise that Apple pulled out of this? Uh, actually, no. I think uh, it's been about 10 years and uh, Apple has almost nothing to show for it. I think you can look at it like, why doesn't Apple make a TV? Well, why why doesn't Apple make a car? It, it, there's just it's not in its DNA. There's not a lot of uh, you know margin. Like Apple typically makes thirty percent margins. Like cars are hard uh, and the margins aren't there. So there's a ton of reasons. In fact, I would say it's surprising it lasted as long as it did. Yeah, it is interesting. Does it say something though, perhaps about? The whole EV market. I mean, it's an interesting note from, from Bloomberg this morning talking about saying that uh, while people were buying more electric cars, it wasn't increasing exponentially. And at the same time, in the tech world, things like AI are far more uh, perhaps seen as the future. Do you think that's happening? Well, I certainly think that Apple is worried that it's behind in AI. Uh, we've all used Siri and we've all been a little dismayed compared to you know the contemporaries, Google and Microsoft and even Amazon's Alexa are quite a bit better than Siri. So, you know, Apple's obviously behind there. They need to get ahead there. Um, but, you know, it makes sense that, you know, Apple wasn't getting anywhere with the car and they look around, they see, you know, Tesla lowering their prices and being uh, competitive that way and really looking to China. I think China's EVs are incredibly inexpensive. Uh, you know, you, you get like 80 to 90% of the car for half the price uh, in China. So, that, I think, was really, really the big reason Apple doesn't want to get into cars. Yeah, because way, way back at the beginning, I think there was even a thought that, that Apple might actually buy Tesla. But that obviously is a long way off the possible now. Yeah, I think there was a conversation perhaps that uh, maybe a one-way conversation when Tesla was in trouble that Elon uh, Musk asked Tim Cook, maybe you could help us out with some cash or you know something like that. But um, you know, Tesla is obviously too valuable now to be uh, purchased by uh, Apple. And, uh, you know, I I think perhaps maybe Apple could look at some of the lower cost uh, EV manufacturers out there like uh, Lucid or maybe even Rivian uh, just lost a lot of value. So um, that may have made sense. But in reality, I think that doesn't solve the China problem. And, you know, China is making almost as good cars at a fraction of the price. And, you know, Mm -hmm. Apple obviously has eyes in China. They know what's going on. They, They have a uh, stake in the uh, car sharing service there. So uh, that, I think, is the big reason Apple, Apple's not 
going into cars. And in the meanwhile, others are jumping in. I was interesting, a line this morning, I think, saying that Peugeot, some other European car makers, now pushing to make cars as good as the ones coming from China and as efficiently. Yeah, I think that as good is not the problem. I think as inexpensive or you know as value added uh, is the big problem, and I think that's where they have to get to scale. Uh, China obviously is the king of scale. They've they've gotten huge scale on their EV market. They're you know 1.4 billion people. It's a it's like you know Europe and the U.S. combined in terms of addressable market. So uh, the the other companies have to figure out how do they get to that same scale. Yeah, but in the meantime, I mean the whole idea of EVs it's still very live. I mean the problems, of course, about charging points and all kinds of practicalities. But you don't get a sense that any of the impetus in all that is going. No, not at all. I, I think EVs are here to stay. And in fact, I think this is the, the last, you know, uh, puff of the uh, internal combustion engine. I think, uh, you know, all the great cars that are coming out are, are going to be EVs. Um, you know, people now know somebody, the friend or a family member that has an EV and they're great. And, you know, there's all these advantages over uh, internal combustion. And then obviously the the, the pain points of you know yeah. the charging network and 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 the range and all that stuff okay. is being addressed so i think we're it'll, only going to get it'll come through seth thanks for being with us seth wide there that's it from world business report Leute, habt ihr Bock darauf eure Versicherung in den Griff zu kriegen und dafür 30 Euro Shoppinggutschein abzustauben hier ist übrigens Tara vom Podcast Tara sagt was und ich sage euch Ladet euch die Clark-App runter und nutzt bei der Anmeldung mein Code TARASAGCLARK. Alles groß und zusammengeschrieben. Da kriegt ihr nicht nur eure Verträge gecheckt, sondern ihr könnt euch auch kostenlos und unabhängig von den Expertinnen beraten lassen. Also probiert Clark aus und holt euch den 30-Euro-Shopping-Gutschein für Ikea, Amazon und Co. mit dem Code TARASAGCLARK. Musik 